Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we look at the latest push to regulate the internet. We unpack why more than 50 people have been charged over a massive college admissions fraud in the US and look at whether Michael Munger is right and that crony capitalism could bring the whole system down. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Today we welcome to the show the IPA's Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. Great to be here, Scott. And also IPA Research Fellow, Dr Zachary Gorman. Good morning, gentlemen. In our final segment, uh, these fine people will be discussing their picks for books and culture, including Stephen Harper's new book, the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo, the J.K. Simmons thriller Counterpart. (laughs) Hang around for this, a new book on John of Salisbury. If you're listening on iTunes or any of the other great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe so that you get your regular fix of looking forward. Before we start, Zach, two weeks ago we had uh, Chris Berg on the line from... Liberty Fest, where he had been a speaker uh, over in Perth. You were there too. What, what was your uh, special topic at Liberty Fest? Uh, well, I took on the history of Australian liberalism, which is my sort of academic speciality. But then I threw in a bunch of WA history because they're all secessionists over there and they love hearing about themselves and they really don't care about what's happening over here. And so they actually, this would be a rare example of someone travelling... Uh, from New South Wales via Victoria to Perth to say, yeah, succession was probably a good idea. Oh, definitely. (laughs) He also, when he was there, he also made um, the very offensive claim uh, that attacked Victoria for its lack of free trade tradition, which I'm very angry about, and this is a long-standing area of contention between Zach and I. But just to point out that I was on this weekend at Bright in Victoria, named after the legendary free trader John Bright. We have, of course, another town called Cobden, named after Richard Cobden, yep. another legendary free I trader. That. I did notice how close to the border Bright was. It was very far. Look, 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 I think you're stretching. Uh, it's Victoria. Yep. Yeah. No, you can't hang Deacon on us, mate. No, no, no. This, this is <laughs> this is looking for. There's no Deacon here. <laughs> so let's uh, kick off with our discussion today. Um, last Friday in Christchurch, as we all know, something terrible happened, and when something terrible happens, people are angry, confused, they're grieving and they look for answers and they want action, which we all understand. But one part of the action being sought is more regulation of social media and the tech giants. We've talked about it on the podcast before and I suspect we will again many times. Scott Morrison wants it on the agenda of the G20 uh, and Bill Shorten wants to put the whole issue of hate speech on the table. Chris Berg, what's what's happening here? Yeah, so Scott Morrison has called for global restrictions on Facebook and particularly an end to live streaming because, of course, the live streaming of the terrorist attack was a big issue and has been a big issue over the last week or so. Um, Bill Shorten had a piece in the News Limited papers calling for social media to take more responsibility. But there's also been some concrete action from some firms themselves. Um, We can talk about what Facebook have been doing, but... Also overnight, um, or yesterday I should say, which is Tuesday, Telstra started, and Optus and Vodafone I believe, started blocking a number of websites that had been connected in some way to this incident, incident, including either sharing the footage of the incident, that was um, the website Zero Hedge shared the footage, 4chan was blocked and 8chan, or what I read now is called Infinity Chan, um, which was the website, as I understand, that the um, the terrorist actually used to to 
you know, help be part of his community and so forth. Um, that's actually been blocked to to Australian users. So there's a couple of things going on here. So um, there's on the one side, the government wants to regulate the internet more deeply um, and wants to have government bureaucrats actually controlling what we can and cannot see on the internet, which websites we can access. We can talk about some of the specifics of that and some of the existing powers that already exist to do that. But also, on the other hand, the um, websites themselves and the telecommunications providers themselves are starting to take it on their own, um, uh, uh, starting to take up a or assume a responsibility to um, uh, control what can and cannot be shown, not just on websites, but on you know a user's internet connection as well. And this this raises lots of complicated questions. First of all, it's obvious. In the case of we don't speaking on on behalf of you know free marketeers around Australia, I'm sure we don't support government regulation of um, uh, of the internet. We don't support it on freedom of speech grounds. But what happens when corporate agents, Facebook, Telstra, Optus, start doing it themselves? Yeah, look, it's something I'm struggling with personally because, you know, for the government to do it, obviously that's, you know, in my view at least, a no-go. I don't think the government has any place in telling us what we can and can't watch, save for content. I may make an allowance for, in fact, I do make an allowance for content that represents incitement of violence, which is illegal, but it has to be direct incitement, has to be, you know, instructive and deliberately targeted at causing acts of terrorism. But for Telstra and Optus, I mean, these are private companies on... Uh, that. I'm not, I'm not sure... I can't see immediately the case for... or any public policy solution to force them to allow unrestricted content. If you don't like it theoretically... Uh, you should be able to go to another internet service provider. Now that, now in practical terms, that may not be possible because it's not, you know, there 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 aren't that many acts in town when it comes to internet service providers. But I don't know. It's a, it poses a big philosophical question for us. Look, I think there's some suggestion that this is a temporary measure, and we're going to see some movement over the next um, week or so as um, they they figure out what their role is going to be to block, you know, what are quite large and well-trafficked if um, disreputable and sometimes disgraceful and disgusting websites. Well, I was 10 years old when 9-11 happened, so it was quite a formative period for me. And I remember the mantra at the time was very much that we have to keep living our lives, that we can't change the way we live our lives, or otherwise you're so-called letting the terrorists win. I think we have to be very careful about empowering terrorism by overreacting to it. If you have too severe a policy change, too severe, even if it's being pushed by private companies, then you're empowering terrorism as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this is one of the things I'm trying to get my head around is, um, so the, a push for regulation, uh, and Scott Morrison's done this and the ACCC had a digital platforms inquiry, the, 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 the line is like, well, newspapers and radio stations regulated in manner X, mm. but here are these other outlets which are regulated in manner why and they should all be the same but the thing i'm trying to get my head around is they are networks the movie on facebook was called the social networks um it's facilitating interactions between networks and that was you know the really the fabulous thing about it all but if you regulate the platforms out of existence it doesn't mean that the networks necessarily go away Maybe it does facilitate them, which I can understand, but the networks are still there. 9-11 happened you know, pre-internet, essentially, more or less. 
Uh, I might be wrong there, but um, you see pre-social what I, media at any yeah event. Pre, pre-social media. This is what I mean that networks have the ability to form with or without the ability of um, uh, Facebook. For yeah, look, and and here's the problem. So we are now in a world where um, we can create communities of niche interest really powerfully, those communities can become very influential. Now, for the most part, that's a really good thing. That's Mm. an incredible innovation of our society. You can create networks of communities um, uh, around things that you care about, say bike riding, you know, or the bike riding websites or the crocheting websites or or whatever. Um, And you can create really significant communities. But some of those communities are bad. And Figuring out how to deal with that is not a question of, well, we've just got to censor that community. There's no reason to believe that censoring the internet, censoring Facebook is going to be an effective way to prevent bad community creation. First of all, internet censorship is never that effective. Mm. So they're just going to move on to other sites and, and move further down a rabbit hole and be less observable and, and so forth. But but um, uh, we don't really know how to prevent people creating communities of interest and I'm not sure that we have a desire for a government to do so. So here's a, here's a controversial question. Um, the, a lot of this debate has been centred around the live streaming and then the reproduction of the, the, the first-person footage from the person who allegedly uh, you know, engaged in the, the act that we saw last Friday. And the argument has been this cannot be shown, it shouldn't be shown, it shouldn't be viewed. Now, I was one of the people who did see it before it was pulled. And you know, it was the literally the most disturbing thing I've ever seen in my life. And in some ways, I, I wish I didn't see it. But it's not the first time that we've seen confronting or graphic images in the course of, of news. I mean, there have been iconic photos, like the, the very famous photo from the napalm attack in Vietnam where there was a little girl built, burnt by napalm uh, running in the streets of, of Vietnam. That was confronting at the time. That was real. You know, we see confronting images on the news all the time. I, I think it's a little bit of a long bow to say that that images disturbing as it is will will you know they may very well be copycats and so on but to say that people will be driven to insanity on large scales for seeing this i think is i'm i'm not sure that that's a legitimate argument and this is what disturbs me about what comes out of this story about social media and the harm it does it's based on this assumption that people are too stupid to make decisions for themselves and i just picked out one random piece from the abc news in which somebody named Dr. Cohen Silver suggested that online platforms have shaped our, shaped our experience of news and violence in ways to outstrip our capacity to understand it. I just find that a very, very sad view of, of, of the majority of humanity. But isn't that true? I mean, so we have a new technology. I mean, it is relatively new. So we're talking about in social media, uh, you know, the better part of a decade. This is a very, very new technology that is creating new social movements, new social dynamics that we are still trying to figure out. Now, I, I don't think this is a case for regulation. I think this is a case against regulation. And mm. the problem with... Um, the, the simple response that everybody seems to have agreed with that we need to block the, the terrorists 
video, we need to block the terrorist manifesto, is that it's a deeply under-theorized approach or a deeply under-theorized perspective on how people actually become radicalized. Now, we do know a bit about this um, because, of course, we've been tracing young men's radicalization through Islamic terrorism for the last <laughs> now nearly 20 years. Um, and we do know that even as much as you attempt to censor the internet, it's still accessible. And in the case of um, something like a live streaming video footage, it can sh still be shared on encrypted networks, which are invisible to both, well, many of them are invisible to both government and the corporations alike. Well, I think a network uh, or a website like Infinity Chan, there's something um, good about it, at least in the fact that it is so public. So we can go there and we can look at what the alt-right trolls or whoever they may be mm. are talking about. We can even um, engage in conversation with them. It is a, a social network to a certain extent. It's a um, message board where you can interact. If you censor the internet and just drive people underground, it won't stop these interactions. It would just um, put them behind closed doors and it basically will exacerbate the problem in many ways. Yeah. Coming back to Gideon's point, though, like I, I'm actually pretty comfortable in it with a world which says these videos shouldn't be up on the... That particular video, as an example, should not be up on the on a platform. Um, it just It's an intuitive reaction. So, strangely, I find myself, and this doesn't happen very often, feeling sorry for these major tech platforms because it's it's the accusation against them is, why didn't you block that video immediately? Why was it not taken down immediately as if this is something that's particularly easy to do? Now, we talked on the podcast about two months ago about how these, these guys are hiring in the tens of thousands content reviewers, people um, who are probably disturbingly unqualified to make dis fine-grained distinctions between what's acceptable and unacceptable content, which is the worry. But, yeah, the idea that you can write an algorithm which says, oh, my God, there's a, there's a terrible video of something terrible happening. I will now make sure it appears nowhere on this platform, which has billions of uploads, has, you know, tens of thousands of uploads every minute. This, it's, it's, I can't imagine that any algorithm you write to do that could do anything other than just pretty much block everything. I mean, they're essentially talking about banning live streaming. Yeah, yeah that's that's absolutely right. So Facebook have, have released um, figures about how many copies they blocked. They say they blocked 1.2 million uploads of that video wow. um, in the first 24 hours. Um, I think a lot of people in the political class are looking at these websites. Then they, they, the people in the political class don't aren't necessarily brought up to use them. They're alien to their personal experience. Um, they're uh, afraid of them. They're, they're afraid of them. Politicians, especially, particularly politicians. But they're looking at it and just thinking, okay, well, it appears that Facebook can do magic. It mm. can do magic. It, it somehow it's order organizing things in a way that I don't fully understand. Therefore, it should be able to do magic as well. So I'm I'm completely with you. I think Facebook yeah. and um, Google and Twitter, they want to prevent this sort of content from being shared on their platform because it is bad for their yeah, platform. They are trying really they hard. They are trying really hard, but it turns out it's very, very hard to to run a platform and bo to both have an open platform and also be liable or apparently responsible for what is published on that platform. I'm not saying it's an impossible problem, but it's a really, really hard problem. Well, as my understanding is it, of it is that the recognition software that they have is all based on knowing what to look for. So there'll be a song 
that that would be copyrighted that you can't use just anywhere on YouTube. It has to be on the sort of Vivo Vivo sites or these sorts of things. So they send their little robots out searching for that um, particular cadence and then they find it and they strike it and they take it off. But with something like a live stream, you don't know what to program your robots to find because it's constantly happening in front of your eyes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So look, and we're, I, I think it's pretty clear though um, that we're moving into a world where the government's going to take a lot more interest in this. And I, I don't know that we're going to get around that. The Australian government, in fact, already does take a significant interest in social media. And we've had um, the last couple of years cyberbullying laws, uh, which are... Um, which have been very yeah, effective introduced um uh, a few years ago and in by the way those <laughs> listening at home um you get cyberbullied a lot do you oh, well, <laughs> anybody <laughs> the ipa got cyberbullied uh, a lot check, a bit check, check out gideon's twitter feed Any twitter you want five minutes, but more of the but the, the, this is a serious point though we come up with these laws so we're blue in the face i uh, we're spending millions upon millions of dollars on having uh, every school in the country is have extensive seminars with their kids on cyber safety and cyberbullying and it just gets Worse, so it's the old. So what? What make, gives us any faith that the government's attempt to pick and choose what we can and can't watch online will be any more successful? Arguably, it will be worse. Well, look, and and Russia's done precisely this. They've they've um in fact last week made it illegal to insult officials or publish quote unreliable socially significant information, which of course is their interpretation of fake news or the definition of fake news. So it seems like we're going in a direction where the government has decided. Um, Obviously, we're not the Russian government, but it's not clear that um, uh, Scott Morrison or Bill Shorten or the Greens or anybody else in this debate has an idea of exactly what the end goal is. What responsibilities should the government have for the internet? Well, and there's an interesting point there that um, so Russia's doing it, China's doing it. So Scott Morrison takes proposals to regulate the internet to the G20. There's two votes straight away <laughs> in favour. I mean, it's not the World Wide Web anymore. It's it's it's, uh, it's certainly you know we've got the Great Firewall of China. We've got um, uh, Russia uses Kaspersky as advisors and other mechanisms to shut out what they don't want. Um, so Scott Morrison's assumption that the G20 is actually the the right forum to do this. I'm, I'm not sure about that either. I don't know. I, t- I take a bit of a romantic view of the internet, and uh, to me, the internet has always represented this glorious. Uh, largely unregulated space where we see, you know, the entire human condition laid bare, the good, the bad, and in, in some cases the extremely ugly. I just find it sad that we're now absorbing that into the regulatory uh, organ of the state. Indeed. In other news this week, there's, uh, which may not be quite so familiar to listeners, there is a, an incredible scandal uh, that's on foot in the USA uh, around... Uh, over 50 people have been charged in a case where uh, there's been bribes given, various sorts of favours given, ver- various kinds of fraud, un- alleged fraud undertaken in order to get children into elite colleges. This goes to the heart of the Ivy League. Chris Berg, have you been following this? Absolutely. So this is um, uh, named the Operation Varsity Blues case after the um, uh, the... 1990s film. Dozens of people, including Hollywood actresses and wealthy businessmen, have um, been charged for um, two things, cheating on or um, helping their children 
or facilitating their children to cheat on admissions tests, as well as bribing college sports coaches to get admission to really top-level schools, or mostly top-level schools, Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, University of Texas. Um, uh, There are indictments against 50 people, as you mentioned, Scott, but um, the person, the ringleader or the, the... person who's who's done this um william rick singer is admitted to um doing so for 750 separate families this is a really interesting wow. story and really um fascinating from an australian perspective because of course the u.s higher education system is is quite alien to us i think it's i think there's a couple of um important points to point uh, important things to point out so these universities are the top universities in the United States and entrance to those universities is itself a marker of elite status. Even if you drop out, if you got into Yale, that actually opens doors for you or at least gives you a, um, a, a sense of you know elitism and superiority. Not all universities in the United States are those elite universities and many of the regulatory responses that have been proposed in the US um, would actually harm non-elite universities that might also take things like donations and have um, some selective admission. Now these are selective colleges, they um, admit something like 8 to 10% of applications on average. I, w- I looked specifically at Yale, only 6.7% of people who, who apply why do Yale um, actually get in? If you get in, though, it will cost you sixty-six thousand dollars per year Australian, which is, which is extraordinary. Um, now, I, I think there's a lot going on here, but the first one, the first thing that I think is worth discussing, is what is the purpose of these really extreme elite schools in um, in a meritocratic capitalist system? Because it's quite clear you are not paying sixty-six thousand dollars above market rate just for a slightly better education? Well, it goes back to the arguments put forward by Brian Catlin in a book I never got around to reading, uh, The Case Against Education, which... But you're told it's very good. Unfortunately, there is a review of it on the IPA's uh, website. I'll I'll have you know I read the blurb on the back, so, you know, I've got (laughs) a lot from that. And podcast. I've heard him interviewed That's enough for a podcast. podcast And so on, exactly. Um, But no, but as I understand it, the point he made is that something about education, funding and policy in the US has gone wrong insofar as it's no longer about the um, vocational skills and the value of the subject matter that's being taught. It has become a proxy for, uh, it's become a, a signal to employers. It's become a, uh, and, and the side effect of that is it's limited non-college pathways for students. So, and it, it's the case here. I mean, there, there are not enough pathways for people and not everybody who goes to university here should go to university. That is creating an incentive for corruption scandals like we're seeing in the US. Well, it goes back to the question of what are universities for? And as far as I'm concerned, there's sort of two main theories about what universities are for. The first is that it's high-level practical skills, that you go to university, you study engineering, you study law, and then you become an engineer or you become a lawyer. And the other um, approach to university, which is the older approach, um, is the sort of liberal arts approach, where you go to university to become a very sort of well-rounded person that has... Um, a a broad knowledge of various subjects and um, might be good at sport. That's one of the reasons that these scandals were so easy to um, happen in the US is because they take that liberal arts approach. So you can get in if you're good at tennis or if you're good at rowing or these sorts of things. Um, I don't think that liberal arts approach, um, coming to Chris Berg's point, I don't think that liberal arts approach is compatible 
with meritocracy. It's something from a bygone era where it was the sons of gentry being sent to universities. They knew that they would be statesmen or politicians or whatever, um, so they needed that broad education. But in a meritocratic society, you're not going to decide who are going to be your leaders at 18. So you're just wasting society's resources, mm. sending everyone to get this liberal arts education that was only ever intended to be elitist. And and I mean, look, look. so you could say that Yale, and, and I don't think Harvard was on the list, but you know, a Yale, a Harvard, a UCL, Berkeley, um, you could say that they're designed on that sort of liberal arts model. And so, but, but then why are you paying so much for that? And, and it seems very clear to me that this is just almost pure consumption. So you look at, and, and maybe we've been unfair and the press has been unfair to some of the kids um, because it's not clear that the kids knew that they indeed um, uh, that they were being falsely put in or corruptly put in but some of them are, are wasting their time completely wasting their time and doing so very very proudly um, uh, and you know not planning to pass not planning to go to class focusing mostly on their Instagram modeling career um, it's very unclear what what the purpose of going to those uh, other than signaling uh, and and relative status but the signaling the signaling model is as I understand the signaling model of higher education it's more about demonstrating you can do something for three years so mm. demonstrating that you can turn up to class that you can, and in assignments. Demonstrate to an employer that you can sit through something extremely boring. Yeah, precisely. And, and, and still come out the you, other end. You can do advanced statistics. You may never use advanced statistics, but you are able to do that because that's the only way to move forward in your life or one of the main ways that you could move forward in your life. That's the signalling model. This is not a signalling thing. This is extreme elite schools in which getting in is the main yeah, point. But, but yeah. this is Charles Murray's point in, uh, you know, say, coming apart the analysis of, um, uh, you know, what he calls the cognitive elite in the US, overwhelmingly dominated by Ivy League, uh, increasingly only marrying within that uh, that caste almost. It's not It's not just defined by um, wealth, although it is overwhelmingly by wealth. It's, it, it's becoming a, a selection process. So it's not just access to the best jobs. It's to the best marriage prospects, to the best societal status so this gateway that these uh, ivy league schools represent and and as you say america is hope, uh, different in many many ways in its system from australia but it, in america this is definitely a thing i think it might also come back to the sort of logistics of population and that um human beings are sort of naturally hierarchical we tend to create elites and it takes a lot of deliberate effort to um, go against that grain, to create a meritocratic or, or egalitarian society. Um, and in Australia, we're reasonably successful at it because we have a small enough pond. But once you have so many fish, it, you can't even really start to have um, whoever gets the highest exam result getting into a particular university because you're talking about 380 million people. There's going to be so many thousands of people that get essentially 100% that you're going to have to have some dif differentiation and that's where the incentive for corruption comes in. Yeah, look, and, and in the United States, I mean, the United States is the country, still is the country where um, extreme wealth and extreme talent both tend to tend to move towards um, uh, and, and to the extent that it's a very, very large, very rich country comparatively, historically speaking, it's always going to have a superstar effect. So even though there are these extremely expensive 
colleges and universities, the vast majority of the United States population is not going to Yale if they're going to university or they're going to local colleges or, or regional community colleges and so forth to get their accountancy degrees or economics degrees and so forth. So it's very easy. It, it sort of reminds me, um, Fairfax Media, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, love to write about the top private schools in part because they're sort of tutting them, but mm-hmm. also in part because that's largely where the media class comes from anyway. <laughs> um, and, it's the, and it's actually, it's not just the same in the United States, it's significantly worse. Nothing gets the United States commentariat more excited than um, top university college scandals. Yeah. Well, that, was, that was what I was actually wondering when I read about this story. How many of these kids who bribe their way into university will end up becoming socialists on the other end? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have the next uh, Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders at uh, these institutions. Uh, look, so and and, 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 uh, and uh, the, other, the other way of looking at it, of course, is the u- universities are worried about their business models because one of the reasons why they have such massive endowments is that if you traditionally, if you wanted to get your kids in, you know, a, f- a few, you know, being a long-term donor to to Harvard or Yale was a good way of facilitating entry. This this has actually been disintermediated. Yeah. This, this, no, so decentralised. We love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Instead of donating uh, half a million dollars directly to Yale, you give half it to this guy <laughs> who he, who gives you know half to the sports coach and keeps the other half for himself. And this is so how you're making an efficiency argument here that so, uh, innovation. Well, uh, absolutely good. Good on him. Although he may spend the rest of his life in jail writing um, a supply chain analysis. But yeah, so uh, a teenage girl who did not play at all play soccer magically became the star soccer recruit at Yale. Cost to her parents, according to the New York Times, $1.2 million. Yeah, you raise a good point, Scott. <laughs> uh, one point to be made is this is not a structural problem insofar as what occurred was actually illegal. It was just a, a, a lapse in the system. But but secondly, you raise a point about the funding of universities, and, it, and I'll draw it back to Australia. I think one of the worst things that Kevin Rudd did was abolish uh, full-fee-paying places at universities for domestic students. Once upon a time, if your kid got 96 instead of 99.6, you could pay their way into Melbourne University uh, to study law or something like that. Um, He said, no, that's not fair, you shouldn't be able to pay your way in, and superficially that's a compelling argument. But what that did at the time was effectively cross-subsidise students who weren't from wealthy backgrounds, who did get there, on uh, by by being the best of the very best, and and that cross subsidisation in effect allowed for students who from poorer backgrounds to go to university. These days, um, universities have been robbed of that funding model, and all they have done is replace full fee playing full fee playing full fee paying domestic students with international students. Now, we can debate whether that's a good or bad thing, but in effect, it's, it's, it's robbed universities of this revenue, which has given the leg up to people and has actually facilitated a meritocracy. It's something we actually should, as a public policy matter, think about. Well, I mean, uh, we could go down this line for probably hours, but that's actually helped create one of Australia's largest export markets in education. I think there's, an, there's another um, interesting part of this, and uh, the uh, a whole bunch of people in the US have sort of been wringing their hands and writing up their think pieces. And one of the um, points that's been made, which I think is quite compelling, is this idea that it's been driven by what's called snowplow parenting. Snowplow parenting is a variation of helicopter parenting where you are the snowplow as a parent, removing 
all the obstacles in mm. the kids' way. So by and large, the people who are able to pay these bribes are, are doing very well. And they may have done well on their own back. They may have, you know, they, they, they may have been actors or they may have been successful business people. Um, but they've seen their children. And rather than just sort of helping their children out in a small way or preventing the children from suffering hardship, they have to not just do that, but they have to get them into Yale yeah. as well. And yeah. you have to, you know, you have to drop $400,000 on a sports coach <laughs> in order to push your child into Yale. <laughs> but for the privilege, don't even play soccer. For the privilege of paying $66,000 a year. And uh, that's where, it, sorry, that's where it becomes um, so much more of a problem where it's um, less about necessarily institutional structures. And I would certainly argue that in a certain way, um, what we're seeing is philanthropy in a black market. So you're not allowed yes. to pay your way into it anymore. So people have to do it through back doors. Um, but when it is that sort of cultural problem about how parents view their role as parents and how much of their own sort of self-worth they put into um, having a successful child, these sorts of things, then you have then it's not going to be a quick fix where you just crack down on the corruption. You actually need to change hearts and minds and convince people that this is not the way that you should be raising your children. Look, I, I think we should probably end with this quote from Julia Roberts, hmm. the actor Julia Roberts. Um, who, That's who the first time we've ever said that on the Looking Forward philosopher podcast. Julia Roberts. <laughs> I don't want... To cut it for me. So, so she's, she's talking about um, uh, all the... All the the parents and student relationships. I don't want them to have, uh, talking about our own kids, I don't want them to have some of the struggles I had. But at the same time, you do need to know how to be able to make your bed and how to do your laundry and how to be able to make one meal. These are important life skills. My children have to be able to run their own race. They have to have their own experience. Well, I'll, do, I'll just add to, in defence of the meritocracy. can't add to that. He just, he just said it's a good note as, to finish As an optimistic <laughs> note, to, in defence of the meritocracy, kids who've had everything done for them tend not to be very, very good when they come out the other end of it. So I think that, you know, these people will fall over and it will be people who've got their own merit. They They'll have to. survive and thrive. They have to run their own race. A rare moment they of agreement have. between Gideon Rosner and <laughs> Julia Roberts. <laughs> We're also going to talk today about a piece by Michael Munger. You can find it in the notes field uh, uh, of this this podcast. Uh, he is an economist in the US. He's written a couple of people, pieces, a short piece called Is Capitalism Sustainable? and a longer piece called The Road to Crony Capitalism, both confronting uh, headlines for coming from an economist who is actually pro-capitalism. Chris Berg, what's going on? Yeah, so Mike Munger is an economist at Duke University, a, a libertarian. In fact, I think he was a... Um candidate for the Libertarian uh, Party in the 1990s. Um, and it's the piece has been published by the American Institute for Economic Research, which is um, run by uh, our good friends, Jeffrey Tucker and Ed Stringham, um, both excellent free marketeers. Um, basically, his argument, in fact, he summarized his argument this way. Um, it's the problem of capitalism in the 21st century is crony capitalism. It's rent seeking. It's the fact that corporations try to steal or seek as much benefit from the government rather than trying to get the government off their back and fighting for free markets. As Mike Munger has written, the, here's the difficulty as succinctly as I can manage it. Corporate leaders benefit monetarily and in the short run from negotiating favourable legislation and protection from politicians. It's actually more um, valuable for corporate leaders to lobby for um, special uh, protections or or special benefits than fight for 
the free markets that keeps capitalism alive. Now, he's absolutely right in this. And in fact, it's somewhat worse than um, at least his opinion piece suggests. One of the studies that I often quote in this is um, a study published in the Journal of Law and Politics in 2009 that found for every dollar of lobbying um, in a particular um, uh, political debate, it resulted in $220 worth of benefits. Mm. That's a 22,000% return on investment. This is a big problem for capitalism. My lobbyist friends will be happy with that statistic, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so pass it around. Uh, yeah. As much as I find it depressing, yeah, that was a depressing article because it's absolutely right. Uh, th- there is more money these days in, in um, going to Canberra and uh, milling around the corridors there than, than there is in genuine hard-working, honest capitalism. I think that part of this actually, the right broadly wears the blame because for too long we haven't done a good enough job at separating decent free market genuine capitalism from crony capitalism. Uh, we've allowed for greedy corporations to be bundled into the same basket in an unsophisticated way. When you look at the corporations and the, and the companies that people have the most bad will towards, they are in industries that are highly regulated and highly subsidised. For example, energy companies that line up in Canberra to hoover up subsidies for ineffective power uh, solutions. Uh, the banks that have, through pages and pages of regulation, kept competition out for a long time. When you look at companies that are more popular, they are in areas that are le- less regulated. For example, consumer electronics. People culturally love Apple in a way they'll never love Origin Energy. Uh, <laughs> they love... Uh, they, 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 they love... IKEA, for example, or they you know like IKEA more than they'll ever like the National Australia Bank. Love would be a strong word, I think, for IKEA. Oh, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, I think the other thing to bring out of Munger's argument that was another key point is that it's not just crony capitalism, but also the incentives for politicians to perpetuate crony capitalism because of all the kickbacks and because of the campaign funding and these sorts of things. And that's where his argument became depressive. It's not that all this bad is going on and we can just identify it and elect good politicians who will stop it. Um, but he was sort of saying that the system itself um, perpetuates itself. Yeah, and Gideon's right about the right in, in the sense that we all have our um, our favourite critiques of crony capitalism. So uh, on the one side you might point uh, to, say, renewable energy companies chasing the subsidies, but then, and those on the, the left will point to other, other companies uh, in industries they don't like and and the point this is where it's depressing but it's also necessary to say the issue is here is not that those guys over there got those subsidies it's to question the system and say how, mm. how did that system come about but i think he, he does underestimate i think the power of of entrepreneurship what he's worried about is entrepreneurship being stifled by regulation but the way that entrepreneurship's typically worked is it's to get around regulations it's mm. it's the new entrance it's because if if the gains are that great to get you know inside the system how hard do you fight to so, to get in, in you know to create a a different kind of so technology I'll, I'll t- i want to give i, I want to give the optimistic so uh, we've gone around the table and everybody's been sad <laughs> um <laughs> which is exactly what we want listeners to think um uh but there's something called the Tulloch Paradox. Um, Gordon Tulloch, the um, famous political scientist and free marketeer, um, uh, came up with this paradox. If lobbying is so good, if you can get a an incredible 22,000% return on investment, as I just said, why isn't there more lobbying? 
So if it's the plenty most, of it. th- there is plenty of it, but it does strike you that there would actually be a massive amount more money invested into lobbying than there is if it is such a enormously successful thing. And 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 so I think we have to resolve this paradox or figure out why why there is less lobbying than we would expect from a um, uh, if lobbying is so successful. Now part of it I think is um, lobbying is a competitive industry, so. It's not like companies just lobby on one side of the argument. Mm. You've got one company on one side and the other company on the other side. So they sort of cancel each other out in a certain way. It's a competitive dynamic. There's also pushback from um, uh, from voters as well. And th- those pushback from voters driven by private sector organisations that are dedicated to being anti-rent-seeking and anti-lobbying. And that's a very good point because the counterpoint I would raise is that it is possible and it does happen that good genuinely innovative companies smash through established interests. Now, the example I'll give is Uber. Uber uh, emerged, there were questions over its legality at the time, at a time when the taxi industry had an exclusive uh, monopoly over transporting people around. Uh, Now, in the end, governments, despite the intense and extensive lobbying by the taxi industry, had to relent and allow for Uber within the regulatory framework. Why? Because Uber was so overwhelmingly popular, it would have taken a very, very brave government to stare down the popular will of voters and stick with the taxi industry. And as a result, not only is Uber you know, free and available and everywhere, but the taxi industry in the, t- in the handful of times I take cabs, it's actually a much better experience now. So it's not all doom and gloom. But uh, Uber is an example, a successful example, I suspect, because it was very visible. So mm. it's very visible to see, you know, we've got a taxi industry and we've got one large alternative called Uber. And, you know, it's a significantly better alternative in, in lots of cases. So um, uh, there was public pressure to, to uh, allow Uber, if only because people were using it anyway. Um, where lobbying is most perverse and probably most successful, although not necessarily as profitable, is in the small regulations, in that in that bulk of red tape that the IPA has always talked about, the large stacks of paper that you don't really know all the very specific, or we as a voting citizen, I should say, don't know all the specific rules about how do I, you know, construct a mine. For example, or how do I how do I build a manufacturing plant? But those are the ones that get those are the ones that are the subject of a lot of lobbying, um, and those are the ones that are that that are most perverse. And if you look at the growth of regulation over the last couple of decades, you can see that those are where um, the the damage from overregulation and red tape has come from. And I think that's the problem in a certain to a certain extent is that it sort of needs to reach a tipping point where those small pieces become visible again, that the the mass of it and what it's doing to the economy um, becomes visible. Um, my argument against Munger's sort of apocalyptic vision of a <laughs> cabal of vested interests that are going to create a closed shop of politics um, is that we've been here before. Uh, Chris would know better than I do about a thing called mercan- mercantilism. So... Um, Adam Smith and all these people we admire weren't arguing in a vacuum for free markets. They were arguing for free markets because they didn't exist because you had a really interventionist government where you would have to get letters patent or a royal charter in order to run a particular business. And there was all sorts of government intervention for think of things like the East India Company um, in order to um, promote this sort of crony capitalism. And we were able to win that political fight before. 
Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. There have in history been bonfires of regulations um, and they've come about from really the confluence of two reasons, one of which is you know, a shift in political philosophy that it would be better for our economy and our society if there were fewer regulations. And of course, the other side is you know, it was in people's interest. And it is, and we do need to remind the government this, and it's not my preferred style of argumentation, but it, it, we do need to remind the government that a healthy economy actually helps it even in its own self-interest. It does not benefit the government to reduce the number or size of taxpaying organisations in their country. I don't think that's the reason that we should be deregulating. I don't think that's the reason that we should be trying to attract firms to Australia because, you know, we aren't, the, the, the government is only secondary to our liberties and interests and well-being. But we do need to remind the government sometimes that it is in their interest, even if they are acting completely self-interested, even if they are only interested in the amount of money they can extract from the economy, it would be good if there was more money in the economy for them to extract. Now, we come to that part of the show where we talk about books and culture. I'm going to give Gideon Rosner two goes at this. Two goes? Because <laughs> I, I do want to ask you... I've only, only prepared for one. Because I do want to ask you about a video that uh, you yourself have appeared in. Gideon. Yes, in my in my opinion, it's an excellent video and I highly commend it to podcast listeners. Produced uh, by an excellent team, I must say. Yes, uh, the, the lousy host, but never mind. Um, no, th- this is a very, very important issue for the IPA and for uh, freedom lovers across the country. It's a, it's the case of Professor, or now Dr Peter Ridd, who built the cat on sloppy scientific standards at James Cook University that led us all to believe that the Great Barrier Reef was being quite killed by climate change. For his efforts, he's been uh, dragged through all manner of academic censures, gag orders, warnings by the university, and eventually sacked. Now, firstly, it's a, a question about climate science and the validity of it, and questions about the quality of so-called peer review and everything else. But also, it's a the underlying question is about academic freedom. Uh, about now, to give you context, Peter Ridd was. He, the NTU uh, National Tertiary Education Union. But well, you, you can watch the video. Oh, you can, you can watch. We're the encouraging video. listeners to watch the video. Okay, okay. So the 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 the, 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 the key philosophical issue. And you're in it. I, I most certainly am. I'll stop giving it, giving it away and spoiling it for everybody. So please jump on to ipa.org.au forward slash Peter Ridd. That's R I D D. And you can also find it on our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter channels. Excellent, thank you, Gideon. You will get you will get a proper pick, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris, yeah. So I watched the um, documentary Free Solo, which um, uh, many people may know won the best documentary at the Oscars. Free Solo is about a um, a climber called Alex Honold who climbs El Capitan, which is um, what he says, and the documentary says is basically the most impressive cliff face on the planet at Yosemite, um, and he climbs it without ropes, without aid, only, as far as I can tell, carrying a little bag of, um, uh, of, of chalk dust to, to dry his hands. It's um, horrifying. Um, it's a fascinating documentary. Um, there's a few interesting themes that come out of it. The documentary doesn't play too heavily on these, but they're quite fascinating. So it's directed by... Um, uh, one of his friends, a guy named Jimmy Chin, and one of the big concerns that they have and the um, the film team have is, well, you know, we don't want to cause anything to go wrong with this free solo attempt because any minor slip and some of these some of these holds that he's ha- that he's making on the side of this cliff face, you know, a kilometer 
up in or you know a half a kilometer up in um in the sky basically i like a, a half a thumb hold and he's flicking between two half a thumb holds and then kicking out his foot and so forth and the director is very concerned well will observing him put extra pressure on his performance or could a drone that they use to film him knock him off his um knock him off his game and then knock him into the ground so it's it's a fascinating um it's sort of like quantum mechanics. If you observe something, it changes it. Um, but the other questions that it has, of course, is why on earth would you do such a horrifying thing? So the documentary has a couple of suggestions. Um, there's some suggestions he had a sort of tough childhood. But more interestingly than that, halfway through the documentary, he gets an MRI. And um, some of the uh, doctors there suggest that his amygdala isn't firing. So he's actually, he's got a differently wired brain than the rest of us. And he doesn't therefore experience fear like the rest of us. So, you know, if, if that, if you don't feel you uh, don't experience fear, I'm not going to suggest you go free soloing because that would probably open us up to some liabilities. But um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's an <laughs> amazing, it's an amazing documentary. If you're scared of heights like I am, um, you should watch it just to train yourself. Um, uh, it's not so easy to watch in Australia, but I have found um, it's available. At, you know, in Melbourne, it's available at Cinema Nova and Lido Cinemas, these sort of indie cinemas. It is really, really good. I don't think there's a huge political message from it, but it's a it's a Conky fantastic cocky of fears. Con- well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even if you even if you can't feel them. Uh, so my book is a companion to John of Salisbury. So I'm really. Um, ensconced in my academic world. I'm doing a book on Magna Carta and researching for that. And this is an academic book where you have different professors writing different chapters, taking um, different perspectives on this really fascinating figure, um, John of Salisbury, who's a 12th century theologian. He was part of Thomas Beckett's entourage. He spent 12 years at the University of Paris in its formative era. Um, where it was being really sort of provocative and divisive and really shaking things up throughout Europe. Um, And there's all sorts of things that you could point out about um, what's important or noteworthy of John of Salisbury's theological work. Things like he invented the turn of phrase, we are dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. He invented the concept of the body politic to describe um, how we are all sort of interlinked in this political community. Um, But... What I'm most interested in um, him for is that he's a real um, innovator when it comes to political liberty. So we have this stereotype of where concepts of political liberty come from. They were from Greece and Rome, and then we sort of forgot about them. And then John Locke. Yeah, and then the Renaissance and humanism and all the rest of that. And that's obviously not true in its simplicity, and there were obviously incredible limitations to what liberty meant in the ancient world in these slave societies. Um, John of Salisbury is the first um, medieval sort of political philosopher or what, however you want to describe it to, um, to openly say that we should kill tyrants. Um, <laughs> and he develops this philosophy of individual liberty um, that comes out of his Christianity essentially. And what Christianity has is this idea that each individual soul will be judged for their actions at the end of their life. And because of that, um, John argues that that each individual soul needs the moral freedom to make choices that they are later going to be judged on. You cannot be sort of enslaved or forced to do things as a Christian because then you're denying that individual the ability to save their own soul. 
and that sort of fundamental sort of Christian philosophy fitting into our ideas about individualism and how that sort of evolved into humanism. And a lot of people talk about John of Salisbury as basically the first humanist. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And I, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, uh, so that knocks down my claim that John Locke was basically the great tyrant killer. But um, more interestingly, so I, I think it's easy to forget in the 21st century how much of the basic ideas of liberalism that we have were created in a Christian context at their at their most fundamental base that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be christian it doesn't in fact it doesn't at all mean that you have to be christian to be liberal or share those views and it doesn't necessarily mean that those views were only possible from a christian context because i don't think they were um and there's there's empirical evidence to suggest they weren't um but having said that the the most fundamental political theorists that we use to think about liberalism in in the early modern period or in the medieval period did come out of a Christian context and they made their claims based on biblical exegesis, very close readings and very close understanding of the relationship between God, state and man. And these ideas have obviously been shared of their religious element um, these days and that's a good thing because that makes them universal. They're no longer particular to uh, a, a belief system a particular faith but we still have to appreciate where the origins of these ideas come from how they evolve you had to it was a completely different culture and you had to justify things in different ways um, there was all sorts of appeals to authority and even um, the 12th century is the real um, birth of sort of diegesis and using actual rationality and logic to come to a conclusion rather than just what the important person before you had said about a particular issue being the definitive answer to that particular issue. I also really like that point that choice is the key to... You, you need to be able to have make choices in order to be judged on those choices in in the end times or uh, after you die. Um, I think that's that's a really significant thing and it sort of touches on... We had um, uh, uh, Father James Grant on a couple of weeks ago and he, he made he, his argument, as, as I understood it, was very much around you, you make these choices and then you grow and um, you, you over time are able to make better choices and that's the sort of essence of a Christian liberalism or a Christian individual liberty. Which also relates to my pick. Oh, great. So, which <laughs> Thematic. I don't know how we're going to get from... It's I not did, climbing. I didn't think we'd get from John <laughs> of Salisbury to the SBS uh, series counterpart starring <laughs> J.K. Simmons, but we will, and I'll explain why. So this is a, um, a notionally sci-fi drama. Uh, the, the premise is that um, between our world there is a, uh, a passage you can walk through beneath a building in Berlin which takes you to a world which is very much like ours but not quite. That It started to diverge at the start of the 1990s uh, in Series 1. There was sort of some Cold War overtones and, the, and the, uh, the tone of it is very much a sort of a Cold War thriller, so it's entertaining for all of that. But there's also and there's conspiracies and there's faceless governors called management who, who run everything and there's spies and lots of people getting shot and uh, gratuitous sex scenes and all the things you'd expect from the genre. But what it is actually about is it's, it's a meditation on what makes us individual. 
because on as you go through this portal, like you, you have passports, so a select few are allowed to travel to the other world, and you can actually meet your counterpart. Chris Berg could meet Chris Berg on the other side. Yeah, and bad, bad Chris Berg. Bad, mm. I'm, no, good, I'm a good Chris Berg in this story. Okay, <laughs> but how do, how do we know? How do we know? I could meet good Gideon Rosner. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. And 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 interestingly, one of the premises is they keep it secret because they believe that this would drive most people mad. In, you know, existentially to say, well, who am I then if this other version of me? exists over there and, and season two, which I'm about halfway through, and as I say, all of this can actually be downloaded from SBS On Demand, which is a tremendous service and unlike Netflix, which we've all completely paid for. free, as we've already paid for it because <laughs> it's free to users because taxpayers have already paid for it. Um, so it becomes a meditation on what makes us individuals and, it's pers- and you mentioned choice. This is the hook. It's like there are good versions of, say, uh, the J.K. Simmons character Howard Silk uh, in our world and the other the other one is is much more badass much more violent much more cynical um, uh, his marriage is broken up all this all these sorts of things and and they're getting down to well, what was the sliding doors moment what was the choice that you made that led to one person becoming good one person becoming bad and in the episode I watched last night uh, James Cromwell who of course you'll all know is the farmer in Babe <laughs> he's the really? president. He's the president in Clear and Present Danger. That's oh, and that, and that too. And J.K. Simmons was from Whiplash. Awesome actor. Very entertaining. Yeah, it, 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 they, it, it's his job to get down to what was that slight normal moment. He's arguing with J.K. Simmons, saying, "But you're the same as this other guy." And J.K. Simmons, the, the, the good Howard Silk, is saying, "No, I'm not. Um, our souls are different." Because we made different choices, and there's this this argument about whether whether you're um, uh, genetic destiny, or is actually is what's driving you forward, or whether it's the choices you make. So there you go. There is a connection. So it's a fantastic TV series, and and I've only seen the first series, and it's very Cold War, and it's it's sort of hard to it's hard to see what the metaphor is trying to tell you um you know which is which is the free west and which is the yeah well, um, i think most uh, most of that evaporates in series two yeah. the, the cold the cold war echoes i think you're right never really quite worked they never quite landed it hmm. uh they seem to have given up on that the, the, <laughs> and even tonally like it used to be like you'd go to the other world and everything would be darker there'd yeah. be you know fewer street lamps as indeed there are in communist countries um, fewer cars, all that sort of thing. They've sort of given up on all that. That's too hard. And I think it's better for it because it's come more back to what does it mean for the individuals who are, who are struggling with all this. So I, there's absolutely no connection between what I read and those two, so no segue <laughs> there. Um, I recently finished Stephen Harper's book, uh, Right Here, Right Now. Now, Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister of Canada, Conservative, uh, governed Canada for about 10 years, is somebody I actually... Rate, uh, rate in his performance in government uh, is doing a reasonably decent job when he was there and somebody I, I used to rate as a, a good standard bearer for the right globally. I have to say the book is somewhat underwhelming. I think it's worth a read because, uh, firstly, the good. The good is that Stephen Harper you know, does... In effect, he cycles through a bunch of hot-button political, public policy issues, immigration, uh, the free market, uh, trade and so on, things that you, know, you see debated in the US especially. The good is that he does bring a lot of depth of knowledge to these areas. He, there, there's very useful explanation of the history of these public policy areas and different, you know, for example, on immigration, he talks about the reforms made by... Um, 
the Johnson administration versus the reforms of the Reagan administration, so that was useful background. The bad is he seems to me to be one of these people who runs these, the same old, you know, the free market is good, but immigration is good, but free trade is good, but uh, where I agree with him, the point seemed obvious. Where I disagree with him, he came across as wishy-washy. And the Which overall, is a terrible sign. <laughs> well, well I, don't, I don't like wishy-washy. Um, and really, fundamentally, he, he just seemed to me like, you know, a bitter old man muttering to himself at the pub. Um, I, I, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, well, uh, <laughs> Some of my to, best friends are. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as opposed to me, who's a bit of young man who mutters to himself at the pub. But um, more to the point. Um, uh, so look, it, it is worth a read. It's it's an interesting take on on conservatism. Uh, but um, I think the biggest efficiency is actually in his assessment of the market. He defends the market on a very tired, intellectually tired, utilitarian basis. The same old. Well, you know, the market isn't perfect, but it's the best at meeting human needs and so on. I think we on the right need to do a better job collectively at at doing what the left does, which is defending the morality of what we believe in. We don't support markets because they just happen to be, in the to paraphrase Winston Churchill, the least bad economic system that's been tried. We support the free market. We support capitalism because it is inherently moral, because people who have worked to create something deserve to reap the material benefits of it. Uh, and and I think that Harper does a disservice by sort of reverting to the same old tired, uh, embar- almost embarrassed defence of, of uh, liberal economics. Can I, can I ask, um, it's fascinating that that's your take on, on Harper because... Uh, he emerged at the end of what had been sort of Armageddon for uh, the forces on the political right in Canada. The, the old progressive conservative party had had collapsed uh, at a national level. The reform party sprung up in the mm. in the in the prairie states, and it, and it, there was a, a long journey, which I, I wish I knew more about mm. before they actually reformed under the banner of uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Conservative Party. Um, so you're saying that out of the end of that whole process, rather than actually it being sort of an... It was a political renewal, but it was not a philosophical renewal in, in that sense. So it, he touches it, on it. That was actually my disappointment as well that he didn't go into... Because I'm a big tent guy. I really do think that, you know, we have fights among ourselves within the right, and I know some of us don't like that term, but to me it's a useful umbrella term to cover... You know, centre-right view, libertarian, conservative, classical, liberal. I think that our similarities are more important than our differences, and we can have those internal respectful discussions, but broadly we need to find common ground. I think Stephen Harper and his experiment with the United Conservative Party, such as it was, was a triumph of that. I was disappointed that he didn't go into that in greater detail, but I think I think that the, the book was coloured by his loss. I get the sense he's still humiliated by the loss and still bitter about it. And, yeah, I think that does a disservice to the book. And, and a lot of it is, you know, as a former politician's book often is, defending his record. Um, but it was a defended on a, look, I did some good things, I wasn't that bad, I didn't deserve to lose basis. Uh, again, look, worth a read, recommend it. Some interesting perspectives, but I was disappointed because, as I said, Harper is somebody who I actually rate up there with people like John Key and Bibi Netanyahu as being the great centre-right leaders of the 21st century. He's, he's interesting in one way, and th- this is why that 
book sounds disappointing. Uh, he was in power between 2006 and 2015. Yeah. So he's in power before the global financial crisis when, of course, John Howard was still in power. So he's of that generation, or at least of that pre-GFC generation, and he pops out just before the really early starts of the populist movement or mm. global populism, if you will, um, on the centre-right in, in the developed world. And so to unfortunately not be able to sort of not to be able to reflect on what what is the role of a conservative party. Well, that may well be why um, why it just doesn't feel of the time. But that's part of the problem is that that he was at that unique moment in history where he has to now in this book defend things like you know automotive bailouts and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he literally does. So you know that, that and that plays into the whole well. The market's good, but you have to understand that if the uh, auto industry went under, you know, we'd lose jobs. It was just it it, it was it was. The guff you'd expect from uh, centre-right politicians here, frankly, more often than not, <laughs> that I expected better from Harper. Well, but still buy the book and read it. There may well be a slew of those books in about a year's time <laughs> or less. for people who have more time to write them than they currently do. Thank you for that, Gideon, and thank you for your other promo for the Peter Ridd video. If you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow our podcast on the IPA website, uh, but better to subscribe through a podcast platform like iTunes, Podbeam, or any of the others. This podcast has been brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research and enable further podcasts. You can either join or donate by going to ipa.org.au or indeed give us give us a ring and talk to one of our wonderful people and uh, find out how you can support our work. A big thank you today to our panellists, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Gideon Rosner. Thank you, Scott. And first-timer, Dr Zach Gorman. Cheers. Look forward to having you both back on again soon. And, of course, big thank you to our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>